I think when we look at the Ukraine, one of the things we need to be slightly cautious around is what lessons are being offered and perhaps what lessons might be learned. They don't necessarily dovetail exactly at times. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. On this week's program, Doug Barry of the International Institute for Strategic Studies on All Aspects of Global Military Aviation and GE Aerospace's David Tweedy discusses the company's XA100 three-cycle adaptive engine, what's next for the adaptive engine technology program, and more. And we'll have this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is developing the next generation of fighter aircraft engines to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. The XA-100 is tested and ready for warfighters to go further, go faster, and fight harder. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA-100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. And Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. JJ, what's in the news of the week on All Wings Considered? Vago, big money. The F-35 announced uh, the Lot 17 award, $7.8 billion contract. That sounds fabulous, but it's actually less than it looks. And we can talk about that in a bit. The United States Army is taking a safety stand down to stand down flight operations after a couple of recent crashes. You covered those very well in Monday's discussion with Bob Hastings. I recommend people to that particular podcast. Turkey's TFX stealth fighter has been announced formally, and it has a name. It's Khan. I defy you not to think about Bill Shatner when you hear that. It means king, apparently. The first prototype is out, and it looks very F-35-ish. Last week, we talked about the return of the William Tell exercises in the Air Force. Well, now Cope Thunder, another name from the past, is back in the news. The exercise with the Philippines going on now for the first time after 33 years away. F-22s are turning into balloon busters. They intercepted a new spherical object off Hawaii. Apparently, as of this recording, that's continuing to be tracked. And this is an interesting note. The Royal Australian Air Force's A330 tankers are now cleared to refuel Japanese Air Force F-15s. An interesting example of cooperation in the Pacific as countries band together in new ways. I don't know, almost as if there were some emerging threat there. Vago? <laughs> well said. Uh, yes, as if, as if they were, whether they're coming from balloons uh, or uh, J-20s, uh, as we will discuss a little bit with our uh, mutual good friend, Doug Barry. I just want to say, you know, kudos to the United States Air Force and, and indeed the entire uh, U.S. military enterprise and those of our allies and partners. Ferdinand Marcos Jr. obviously was in uh, Washington, D.C. on a very important visit uh, and visited the Pentagon uh, as well. He's obviously the new uh, Philippines uh, president. And it's great to see these exercises coming back. It's also great to see the kind of elephant walks, right? Large scale, rapid takeoff exercises, uh, those sorts of things were a matter, of course, throughout the Cold War. We kind of got away from them because we were in Iraq and Afghanistan. But it's also the kind of thing that, you know, you've got to practice if you're going to do it. And if we're going to an agile combat employment future, you are going to need to vacate a base quickly. 
Uh, and, and that's particularly challenging when you've got a lot of big airplanes. So it's great to see some of the tanker surge uh, exercises uh, that we're doing, the William Tells coming back, uh, the Cope Thunders uh, and, and otherwise. Talk to us a little bit about the F-35 Lot 17 and why that doesn't look quite as good as you think or some people may think that it looks. And that's the one that really did stand out to me, Vago, because while it is big money, $7.8 billion, nothing to be sneezed at. We see a great paradox in the F-35 program as more and more countries opt to order the jet, yet annual production rates are going down. Lot 15 was 145 aircraft. Lot 16, 127. This Lot 17 award is for 126 a year. The current cap on production is 156. So the idea that they're making fewer F-35s every year and with every contract is bizarre, unless there's news coming that they're stretching out the program. And so you wind up getting the same number of jets over many more years. There's been a hint to that already in one of the selected acquisition reports, but nothing official from DOD yet. Absolutely fascinating uh, on that front. This week, I visited GE Aerospace's engine operations in Evendale, Ohio, outside Cincinnati, where I was among a handful of reporters to see the company's XA100 adaptive three-cycle engine that's been competing against Pratt & Whitney's XA101 for the U.S. Air Force's adaptive engine technology program. The service, however, decided against pursuing AETP, canceling the effort, saying it would fold the technologies generated into the next generation aircraft propulsion program known as ANGAP that will be powering the next generation air dominance capability. I talked about what's next with David Tweedy, GE's vice president and general manager for advanced products. Here's our conversation. David, thanks very much uh, again for the invitation. It was great to see the engine in person after hearing about it for so long. And thanks so much for making time for us. Well, I really appreciated the visit, and we love showcasing all the great work our, our team has done to advance the state-of-the-art in combat propulsion. Um, you know, and I also should uh, tell the audience, we saw uh, a tremendous amount of manufacturing technology, including some of the laser additive technologies you guys uh, have developed, but we're going to save that for another program. The Adaptive Engine Technology Program, or AATP, began in 2007 as the alternate engine for the F-35. That was canceled. Then it was reborn as a competitive effort between you guys uh, and Pratt and Whitney to develop, to develop a more powerful, more reliable, longer range engine for the uh, F-35 and also to pave the way for the future of aircraft propulsion. After spending about $4 billion, the Air Force decided against continuing with AETP, saying that instead uh, it is going to upgrade the existing F-135 engine that will be ready around 2030. At the moment, the engine is a little bit of a weak link for the jet, it faces reliability issues, and it's also running out of power and cooling, especially for the Block 4 version of the F-35. Tell the audience what makes the AATP engine different than existing ones and why it's relevant. Well, thanks, Vago. The AATP engines, which really are what we view as the first 20, true 21st century combat engines, the goal there was to establish a new foundation of technology and architecture that could provide transformational benefits in range, thrust, thermal management, and durability for a variety of platforms. Under ATP, GE's XA100 engine is running and testing. And there's three fundamental things about this engine that is different from anything that's come before. The first is the adaptive fan, the ability to on the fly flex between a high fuel efficiency mode and a subsonic cruise and loiter condition 
and then to flex into a typical high thrust for performance combat mode. That adaptive piece is new to this engine. The second is a third stream architecture. Engines are being asked to provide a significant thermal management benefit to the airplane, not just a thrust producing devices in prior generations. And we've added a third stream to this architecture to meet those needs. And third is the inclusion of advanced components and manufacturing technologies. And for GE, that's ceramic based uh, material composites that have higher temperature, more durability, lighter weight, and additive technologies uh, that uh, 3D printed parts that can unlock the design engineers from the traditional shackles of uh, conventional manufacturing techniques. So those three innovations coming together in one package has never been done before. And that's what allows us to simultaneously provide 30% more range, 20% better acceleration capability, double the thermal management, and to meet or exceed existing durability requirements all in a given engine for a variety of platforms. That's what makes us different. Um, we had uh, Air Force Acquisition Chief Andrew Hunter on the program a couple of weeks ago, and he explained that AETP technology, you know, that AETP was over and it would be folded into the next generation, the NGAP effort to power NGAD. Sorry, I'm belaboring this with so many acronyms, but we've already all explained them. And that would be your XA-102 uh, engine. Has the Air Force explained how they're going to be connecting AETP to NGAP? So AETP and GE's XA-100 was the foundation of a new family of engines, these adaptive engines. And soup to nuts, front to back, we pushed the state of the art on the XA100 and did a foundational risk reduction program to get to the point where we are today. And that wasn't specific to any platform. While we did optimize the size and integration of the XA100 specifically for the F-35. As the Air Force moves forward in the, in the NGAP program, which we're very excited to participate in and compete in, we're moving forward with an XA-102 prototype that starts with the foundation set on AATP and the XA-100 and looks to leverage that in a similar architecture, similar technology set, but sized and optimized for the unique needs of the Air Force's NGAD family of systems. So it's taking a foundation and optimizing it not for the F-35, but for a, a new set of emerging requirements. So can that NGAP engine then be used, right? If it's being developed for a different application, can it be used in the F-35 in the future for a block four need? The XA-100 is the engine that's optimized for the F-35 and can be introduced the fastest and provide the most benefits. Uh, moving forward, the XA-102 will be optimized for, for different platforms. So how much is it going to cost if we want to keep the AETP program around, right? And this is a competitive program, so you're not assured to win it any more than Pratt is assured to win it. How much does it cost to keep this effort alive, even if everybody understands that you do need a program to make sure that the current engine, of which there are like 800 or so out there, is, is relevant? How much does it cost to keep AETP around so that we have the choice to do this? Because this program has already been going on for you know nearly 20 years or so obviously the, the investment in adaptive cycle engines launched in 2007. So we've been at this quite a while, over $4 billion of taxpayer investment across multiple companies has been expended. You know, as you can see the results from GE, we're proud to show off uh, the XA100 and how well it's performing and it's continuing to run. And therefore we're continuing to test it and get good data from it. We've been good stewards of that investment. As you also maybe recall, uh, close to 50 uh, bipartisan, uh, bicameral representatives in, in the House and Senate 
you know, signed a letter encouraging the DOD to continue investing in adaptive engine uh, technology. And so we've, we're continuing to make the case to, to uh, the stakeholders of what we think is a relatively modest investment to get the ATP program to a, a logical conclusion point, which includes continued engine testing, uh, taking that engine learning and moving forward towards a, a final detailed design of a product configuration. We, we think that's a logical point to get this program to based on all the investments that have been made and the progress that we've demonstrated and we've laid, made out that case to uh, members of Congress who will weigh in on that decision during the 24 budget process. Um, history has shown that some of these uh, efforts for uh, alternate propulsion have taken a long time to mature, whether it was for uh, the F-16, the F-15, the F-14, or, or even the B-52, right? Uh, you and I have spoken about that in the, in the past, that that program was originally born in like the mid-1980s and didn't become a program until four decades, about four decades later, unfortunately. How do you counter the argument that a second engine complicates support and service for US and international F-35 customers, because with a new engine, whichever one it is, whether it's yours or the Pratt one, will require different requirements. What, what changes, what doesn't? Yeah, so we've partnered with Lockheed Martin throughout the course of the ATP program to ensure that an XA-100 could drop in seamlessly into an F-35 jet in terms of airframe integration and operational performance. So we see this as something that's easily both retrofitable and and easily insertable in a block upgrade construct and have worked to, to make that transition seamless. Additionally, uh, relative to the uh, you know, field level maintenance and support, um, we think that our product fits very nicely into the existing construct and that there's no significant recapitalization required to support this product out in the field. And then, you know, as you mentioned, having multiple engines on tactical fighters is, is frankly more typical than not, particularly when you look at the fourth generation F-14, F-15, and F-16 platforms, where that was done a number of times, number of times successfully, and in a way that was affordable and in fact drove long-term uh, benefits into uh, the reliability and cost of engines. And we think we can repeat that same success and data from those programs indicate that about 70% of the long-term sustainment costs are agnostic to which engine you're using. And so we think the, uh, you know, then again, there's not a major recapitalization effort uh, and any of the unique costs are more than paid up for in both the durability improvements, the operational capability improvements and the fuel savings that you get from a next generation engine implemented into a widely proliferated fleet that uh, both the United States and our allies use. How much money would be required, whether or not you guys are providing it or Congress, in order to keep this program going alive uh, at your end? You're, obviously, you're developing the technology and it's just going to have a meaningful outcome, right? So, I mean, it's not $4 billion wasted. It goes into the next generation engine program, but it still leaves you a challenge on the F-35 side of it when the customer gets ready to do that. How much more money, like at what point do you run out of money and you need more money to kind of keep? Uh, at least the team, the capabilities and the engineering going on that. Yeah, well, so fortunately, Congress saw fit to provide significant appropriations in both the 22 and 23 budget cycles, which allows us to keep our team moving forward and allows us to keep testing the engine. That will keep us going for a while. And, and again, we have articulated what we think is a modest amount of incremental funding in the 24 budget that would allow us to get this program to a logical point of, of conclusion 
and then preserve that option, not only for the F-35, but potentially some other emerging uh, opportunities where, you know, this engine could configuration could uh, ultimately be carried forward and uh, really truly capitalize on the investment that's been made and bring 21st century capability into the hands of the warfighter. And how much money would that be roughly? You know, that's something we shared with our congressional stakeholders, Vago. Again, we think it's a relatively modest investment um, to see this thing through to a logical transition point. David, thanks very much. Thanks again for hosting us uh, down in Cincinnati and and best of luck uh, with the program. Pretty impressive technology at the end of the day, and especially on the manufacturing side, which we look forward to revisiting with you in the future. And thanks for making the time to come out and see the great work that the team has done. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. And it is my absolute honor to welcome on the program a very dear friend, Doug Barry, who is the Senior Fellow for Military Aerospace at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. He is one of the world's leading air power minds. And I also have to say that he spent a couple of decades as one of uh, the finest aerospace and defense journalists uh, the business has ever known. He is also one of the contributors to uh, one of the truly outstanding reference materials produced by any think tank on the planet, and that's the military balance. Doug. Welcome to the Air Power Podcast. It's an absolute honor and pleasure having you on. Thank you, Vigo. It's a pleasure. Rising uh, tensions in uh, Asia, uh, a hot war in Europe has reinvigorated interest in air power. And for many, it's sort of better late than never, uh, both for manned and unmanned platforms, as well as the need for longer range uh, munitions, certainly in larger quantities. The transferring of older equipment to Ukraine certainly allows nations uh, an ability to maybe modernize in a different way. Given Ukraine lessons and the demands of the Indo-Pacific, what are the key trends in your view that are shaping the future of air power? I think when we look at the Ukraine, one of the things that we need to be slightly cautious around is what lessons are being offered and perhaps what lessons might be learned. They don't necessarily dovetail exactly at times. I think one of the fascinating things about Ukraine is obviously the comparatively limited use of air power in inverted commas, uh, by by the Russians, uh, given what they have. And conversely, given what the Ukrainians have, their comparative success in certainly denying uh, the Russians overall air superiority, which one might have expected, at least given what the two sides have on paper. I think also worth keeping in mind is the extent that the Ukrainians are getting significant external support in terms of intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance from from the US and its allies in the war, which is having a significant effect. So for me, one of the things that comes out of this conflict is it again underscores the the importance of enablers, uh, and in particular ISR, that whole question around situational awareness from from the tactical through theatre. So knowing both where Uh, your air assets are, what they're doing, what you have in terms of capability, and as important, obviously, knowing what the other side has and what they intend to do with it. And what we've seen in the Ukraine, to me, is the the capacity of, of a potentially much smaller force to nullify 
to some extent, the capabilities of the larger, better equipped force. That said, obviously the problem uh, we have certainly in open source analysis is that we only have a very partial picture of the activities of both sides. So the tendency again on both sides is to promulgate their successes, not to discuss their failures or their losses. In previous wars, you recall this propaganda, and I suppose in this one, you'd call it propaganda as well. And it's a perfectly legitimate element of the fight. But when you try and analyse what's going on, you've always got to keep that in mind, that what we see is a very, very partial picture, certainly in the open source world. And therefore, any of the kind of lessons that you begin to draw from the war are going to be predicated on, on that question mark. I think once the war is over, which certainly it will end at some point, um, then access may be better and there may be considerably more clarity about what worked and what didn't work. Um, the difficulty, obviously, will be gaining an accurate Russian perspective in this, given how difficult in some ways that the, the, the conflict has been for them, certainly on the ground where their forces have underperformed hugely, it, it would appear. Perhaps less so in the air, but there are obviously still uh, failings and weaknesses that will need to be addressed. Well, let's focus on air power for a moment. What are you seeing as the main educational points so far from this conflict? The kind of takeaways for me so far, uh, and these perhaps are many are obvious, the utility of uninhabited systems. Uh, we knew that. Uh, this has simply been underscored by this campaign. The utility of uninhabited systems at a very kind of basic level, you know, they've taken a quadcopter off the shelf and using it either for situational awareness, ISR, or, or to carry a small bomb. The other side of that picture, obviously, is that you lose a lot of them as well. So the kind of attrition rates on uninhabited systems has been high and I think will continue to be high. And I think one of the lessons you might take away from, from the Ukraine war is that you're going to have to stock up on these classes of weapons in significant numbers, except to lose them in significant numbers. And also, conversely, again, uh, you're going to need to be able to deal with them. How do, you, how do you combat these classes of weapons? And not in ones and twos, but in multiple numbers coming in different threat vectors to attack you. One kind of related point in that, obviously, is the, the, the relationship between Iran and Russia, where the Iranians have been supplying not only armed UAVs, but perhaps more interestingly, uh, the Shahed 131 and 136 classes of, of systems, which we kind of describe as direct attack munitions. You'll see them sometimes popularly called kamikaze UAVs, uh, sometimes uh, one-way UAVs. But again, the utility of that kind of system, which in some ways is a kind of cost cool, very, very cheap and cheerful cruise missile kind of style weapon, much, much slower, a much smaller warhead, but fired in multiple numbers. So at the very least, it's a threat that your air defence ground environment has to honour. And obviously, one of the challenges for any air defence ground environment is how many missiles do you have in your inventory versus how many threats do you have incoming? And over the course of, of a prolonged war or campaign, obviously, you then run into issues of inventory depth, utilisation rates and replacement. And again, that's one of the things, another, another strand that I think has come out of this war 
is that perhaps, certainly in the West, um, we emptied our inventories to a greater extent than perhaps we should have done, uh, and we're now having to look to rebuild stocks as we look at the kind of utilization rates that you see. While it's hard to get an authoritative picture of what's going on over there, there is a consensus that there's something of an air power stalemate because each side seems to have sufficient air defenses to deter operations by the other side. And I know that's a thread you were just starting on discussing. Vago's fond of pointing out the idea before the Second World War was that the bomber would always get through, and that has proven not to be the case in practice. What does Ukraine need from the U.S. or from NATO to hold up that end of their strategic equation and deny Russian air power? Or will the Russians eventually be able to overwhelm whatever defenses Ukraine has? Thank you. That boils down to a question in part of um, missile inventory debt. So how many SAMs do the Ukrainians have vis-a-vis or versus Russian appetite for risk? in terms of using their significantly larger and more capable air force to engage. So the ground environment side of the house, uh, the Ukrainians have done pretty well, given what they have, which is remains predominantly a kind of Soviet-era SAM network, uh, supplemented to some extent by, by Western systems. In the air side of the house, I think one of the interesting questions is the Russians perhaps have been having more success than necessarily we, we see, at least in terms of using um, medium and long-range air-to-air missiles. So I think that's one of the other threads that comes out of this, is that long-range air-to-air engagements are now a kind of feature. They, I mean, they were previously, but they seem to be more so now. And in terms of, could you kind of, sort of say, I'm, I'm going to back off having a capable air-to-air element in my, my air defence approach and rely solely or predominantly on ground-based systems, I think that's a terrible hostage to fortune because, one, it relies on your ground-based systems being adequate, two, that they're not overwhelmed, because if they are, then you've got nothing nothing to supplement them with. Let me uh, just ask one more follow-up question before we get to the rest of the discussion, and it's about how to be thinking about weaponry and concepts of uh, operation. Each one of these conflicts is a laboratory. Uh, a laboratory for unmanned systems, a laboratory for defensive systems, a, a laboratory for longer range uh, strike platforms. You know, you talked about the importance of volume. I think it's dawning on people that we're going to burn through inventories uh, remarkably quickly. Uh, indeed, everybody's on an industrialization drive to try to build up capacity. The Russians are trying to build up their capacity as, as aggressively as possible. What does this tell us about the future of air and missile defenses, the future of long-range strike, and especially at a time when the Chinese are developing air-to-air weapons that are extreme long-range. What does this tell us in terms of the trend lines and some of the munition capabilities we're going to need for the future? I think what it tells you is basically you're going to want to be able to deliver effects at as long a range as possible and also keep your enablers out of the way of trouble. You you, You mentioned the Chinese... So the Chinese systems probably designated the PL-17, which is a kind of you know 400 kilometer range, notionally, air-to-air missile, almost certainly intended to deal with what are called high-value, low-volume assets, tankers, ISR platforms, AEW and C. The idea itself isn't new. Um, the Russians looked at this 
requirements towards the end of the, the Soviet period and into the early 1990s, unable to fund the programme. Perhaps before then, you could almost think of the, the F-14 Tomcat AIM-54 Phoenix combination as a kind of precursor to all of this, which was all about engaging the threat before it could get to you and cause you pain. So this kind of long-range engagement is coming more to the fore now, and it drives certain behaviours. Certainly, if you're having to try and deal with it, uh, you want to protect those high-value, low-volume assets. At the same time, you need to still be able to get your effectors into the threat environment and engage successfully with a kind of target set that you're dealing with. So it drives a number of behaviours. It drives things like, you know, perhaps a low observable air refueler at some point to get it further forward. And it also drives you or the West towards certain kinds of air-to-air weapons, which again are kind of longer range and more capable of dealing with the kind of threats that the Chinese uh, look to be developing. The Phoenix was an 80 some odd mile uh, missile. The Amram's a 40 mile. We want to increase that. The Chinese have several hundred mile missiles. The, the U.S. answer to that is that's a very long kill chain that we can interrupt in a whole variety of ways. What are, what are the ranges we need to be thinking about what these future weapons look like? In terms of ranges, there are, I mean, there are a couple of answers there. One is it's not necessarily simply about maximum kinematic range. So not, not just how far a missile will fly, but how far will it fly with enough energy at the end to still to be able to engage a maneuvering target, which is probably a fighter-sized platform versus kind of flying out against a target which is, isn't going to be able to maneuver. So it's the difference between something pulling a couple of G and a target pulling 9G. So I think the range side of the house is, is a kind of interesting question. I mean, I think in the European context, I mean, Meteor has certainly got a mix of both range and energy at the end game. But there's another way of skinning that particular cap, which is if you have a low observable platform, either crude or uninhabited, with a medium range or, or an extended medium range air there missile, then you can move the platform closer to the to the target and then use the missile. Uh, if it's uninhabited, you can also obviously take greater risk. And then you're talking about things like third-party targeting. And I think we, we're beginning to see those ideas surface to some extent in the USN guide kind of CCA environment where, where they're kind of beginning to think of different ways to attack this particular problem set. Well, let's follow up on that for a moment, because sixth generation efforts are underway worldwide. You mentioned NGAD in the U.S., the Navy's FAXX also in the U.S., collaborative combat aircraft, Tempest and FCAS in Europe. Presumably, the Russians and Chinese are doing work in this area. Despite some increasing demand, we're seeing production numbers on the F-35 fall. Are you foreseeing countries cutting short their acquisition of F-35 to move more quickly to sixth gen? Or will they wind up being the high end of a high-low mix with the F-35 on the bottom? The, I think there's a, a number of things in, in, in that that I think are intriguing, not, not least of all, kind of we kind of throw around the term sixth gen, and I'm not really sure that any of us really know in terms of definition of you know, bullet points what, what we actually think a sixth gen aircraft is. It's a bit like it's the one that comes after the fifth gen. I mean, more seriously, so you've got NGAD, if you like, is the kind of encapsulates what you might consider to be a sixth-gen platform. Tempest, SCAF, FCAS, uh, slightly different, in part simply because 
they're not going to have all of the kind of exquisite slash esoteric technology that might end up on a crude NGAD and with the associated expense. I mean, NGAD, one thing you can probably say about NGAD is it's going to be an extraordinarily costly platform or series of platforms, not only to develop, but also just to buy. So things like Tempest, FCAS, SCAF will have to attack the, the problem set in a slightly different manner not least of all to try and control costs. And also because both, you know, the, the Franco-German-Spanish programme and the UK-Italian-Japanese programme are looking to export markets as well. Where that potentially impacts the S35, I think, is an, uh, is an intriguing question. At least in the short term, and the S35 has been extraordinarily successful in the European context, I mean, it's just, it just wins every, every competition it gets put into. I think in the medium to long term, uh, and by that, you're talking out beyond, you know, the 2040s into the 2050s. I think the competitive relationship between the two European projects and the F-35 is going to be fascinating. And it's also going to be interesting to see how the US itself kind of approaches where it goes uh, with the F-35 out beyond the middle of the century. Is there, is there a son or daughter of the F-35 or do they look to another platform? So I think all of these things are in the mix and will only play out over, over the course of the coming decades. Let me take you to the question of the composition of future forces. Bombers, you know, many nations had it. France had it in the form of the Dassault Four, which was uh, one of the most beautiful bombers ever made. Uh, UK had uh, the V-4s, the Vulcan being the last uh, of those, an airplane that despite its appearance was remarkably lower observable on radar and the RAF would use some very innovative tactics in order to be able to use it in a more low observable manner. We had Chris Bowie uh, of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments on last week, along with Mark uh, Gunzinger uh, from the Mitchell Institute, and both made the case why we, we need more B-21 radar bombers. And we've even heard from Secretary Candle that the bomber fighter mix could be changing. As we look in the future, you know, we've had boutique numbers of bombers, lots of tactical fighters, obviously a lot of special purpose uh, aircraft for ISR and, and the like. And yet the fundamental nature of each of these airplanes is going to be different. The B-21 NGAD, just like F-22 and F-35, are powerful sensor and intelligence nodes. Each one of those jets is collecting 150 terabytes of information, uh, something like an hour. And then you've got collaborative combat aircraft added to that. Are we going to a more bomber-heavy force, big airplane force? And what does that mean for just the overall architecture of air forces, given that those at the end are going to be able to process data with even greater fidelity, for example, than intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, command aircraft that we have now in the, in the infrastructure that are in the rear? It's a fascinating set of questions. I wonder if, you know, in part, we kind of restrict ourselves when we call things bombers or fighter ground attack aircraft in the sense that really what in the Pacific theater in particular is driving are platforms that require longer range, uh, bigger payloads. Uh, you then say, what else might you need? And you probably end up with some platforms at the very least, which are very low observable. Uh, so you need that survivability in contested airspace. In terms of the B-21 radar, is it conceivable that we see more numbers? Absolutely. Um, and I think in the Indo-Pacific environment, that class of platform plays particularly well. Also, the kinds of payloads that the B-21 might carry. Do you go back to a, a platform which was some, some kind of mixed 
air to surface, near to air capability, either as a either as a self defence weapon if something leaks through, or actually to go and prosecute missions against air to air targets, relying on its its very low observable characteristics to get in and out. The uninhabited B twenty one, baby B twenty one. All of these kinds of things, I, I think, are in the mix. Is there a kind of requirement for a for a larger, you know, fighter ground attack aircraft uh, that gets back to NGAD and what NGAD looks like, or what the, some of the crude elements of NGAD might look like? At a guess, given the, the requirements drivers we think we see, it's going to be quite a large aircraft for a for a fighter ground attack aircraft. If the long range and bigger payload come into play. Now, obviously, this raises a question in the sense that this is a path that the US is going to go down. So the B-21, NGAD, CCA, where do the allies play in that? Um, obviously, they can't get NGAD in the Indo-Pacific in terms of cost and releasability. The Australians have said, we've looked at the B-21, but we're not going down that path. So they have to have some platforms that are compatible, interoperable, but obviously I'm going to be able to do all of the things that that kind of force mix is going to do. But you still need to be able to play. And that's where I think the crude and uninhabited element becomes ever more important, as does the capacity to do things like air-to-air refueling, longer range, keep your platforms in the air and in the fight for longer. There's a tendency to think that new air power ideas come only from a handful of places, like we're accustomed to the U.S. and Europe and Russia and Israel coming up with innovations. But Turkey's the first to deploy a UAV aircraft carrier. Azerbaijan, Turkey and Israel demonstrated unmanned loitering munitions. What are the good ideas out there that folks should be paying attention to, regardless of where they come from, but aren't paying attention to that could be game changing? I mean, depending on your perspective, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, one of the things that I've been struck by recently is the, how successful Iran has been in developing certain classes of technology that we've seen used in Ukraine uh, and also in the hands of the, the Houthi in Yemen, both in terms of the you know, direct attack munitions and also you know, comparatively or very low-cost uh, cruise missiles as well. So the, the Quds 1, 2, 3 family we've seen supplied by Tehran to Yemen, uh, and also a domestic version, which probably has a longer range called Pave, which probably goes out to about 1,000 kilometres. From what we can tell, certainly in open source, that family of cruise missiles doesn't actually have a terminal seeker, so it relies almost certainly on inertial and sat-nav only. And yet it, it proves to be extraordinarily accurate for that kind of guidance. And it comes with, you know, also a considerable propaganda value in that it, the Iranians have, have used it through the, the Houthi to strike a variety of regional targets successfully. To me, that kind of a low cost entree into the cruise missile world, I think, is, is interesting and potentially problematic in that it poses yet more challenges for, for a defender. You put that in the mix with even lower cost direct attack munitions, those classes of cruise missiles, perhaps backed up by a smaller number of, of crewed aircraft, and you give yourself quite a capable ability to, to inflict uh, damage on an opponent. 
Doug, absolute pleasure uh, having you on the program. Uh, we look forward to welcoming you back as one of our regulars. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time. Really appreciate it. Bago, JJ, my pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.